Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Gonzalez, pictured here, is a hero, especially in Chile. Now, you might not recognize the name Manuel Gonzalez, but you might remember hearing about a copper mine collapse that occurred in Chile on August the 5th. 2010, so it just happened uh, 12 years ago, trapping 33 miners about a half a mile underneath the Earth's surface. Now these 33 miners were able to access an emergency shelter in that mine, which was designed to contain provisions to feed 25 men for two days. Those 33 miners rationed those provisions for the next 17 days in order to remain alive, each having about a teaspoon of canned fish mixed with some water to make a broth, and two cookies per person per day, every day at noon, and that for 17 days. Thankfully, on the 17th day, a drill from rescue workers that were working on the surface was able to reach the men, creating just about a four and a half inch hole But that four and a half inch hole allowed the rescuers to lower food and clean water, a phone line, and other needed supplies that these men needed to remain alive. But it would be another 52 days before rescuers on the surface were able to extract these 33 men. So they were there in that emergency shelter and in that surrounding area that far under the earth for a total of 69 days. But on October 13th, Manuel Gonzalez journeyed 15 minutes down a 28 and a half inch tunnel in a capsule pictured here called Phoenix 2. He made that descent and then greeted those men and was entrusted to secure those miners one at a time in this capsule so that they could take then a 50, 15 minute journey back up to the surface of the earth. It took a little over 24 hours, but at the end of those 24 hours, all 33 men were safely returned to the surface of the earth where they were greeted by loved ones, relatives, and friends, and the entire nation of Chile, and actually the entire world as the world was watching. Manuel Gonzalez was the last person to return to the surface, having descended 2,300 feet in order to rescue 33 entombed men from their captivity in darkness and save them from death. Now, the reason I'm sharing this story with you this morning is because Manuel Gonzalez descended in order to save. And that is really what Christmas is all about. God descended in order to save. God stooped in order to to rescue, and we could say that love came down in order to redeem. That's what Christmas is all about, our compassionate God, stooped to deliver his afflicted people by sending them a rescuer. And that's not really just what Christmas is all about, it's what the entire Bible story is all about, that our compassionate God stooped to deliver his afflicted people by sending a rescuer. And we actually don't have to wait until we get to the pages of the New Testament and read about the birth of Jesus to encounter this truth. We actually find it all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, where God descended to save his afflicted people from their bondage to Egyptian 
slavery. And so I want us to look at that passage this morning on Christmas morning, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, because it actually is a precursor of sorts to Advent. So I want us to consider it so we can see how it's a precursor to Advent, but also I want us to see how it enables us to treasure Christmas even more as the greater fulfillment of God's descent to save us as his people. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. You should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Our text can be found on page 27. And if you are here this morning and don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We would love for you to take that as our gift to you on this Christmas morning. We've got tons of those Bibles, so we would love for you to take one. But that text is on page 27. And if you're able, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, the Lord is speaking these words to his servant Moses. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Uh, we see in this passage that love came down. Stooping to save with three things. With divine attention, with divine appointment, and with divine assurance. So let's start with divine attention. We see this in verses 7 through 9. We read in verses 7 through 9 the first words of direct speech from God in the entire book of Exodus. It's the first words that we hear God speaking directly in the book of Exodus to Moses as he reveals his merciful heart and his grand intentions to redeem his people from their bondage. Just listen to these words again that he speaks to Moses. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Notice the affectionate designation that's used in verse 7. When God refers to the Israelites as my people, that's an affectionate designation. I've seen what's happening to my people, but let's also notice the tenderness of divine attention that we see in these verses. We all desire attention, from the toddler tugging on his mother's skirt to the person walking into a store, an unfamiliar store, needing help to find what is needed, to the person who just wants the friend to put down the phone, look her in the eyes, and listen. We all desire 
attention. And paying attention is one of the most basic ways that we show love because it validates that we matter, that we're seen, that we're known, that we're cared for, that someone is paying attention. In fact, when we don't get that attention, when we're ignored, it's easy for us to draw the opposite conclusions. I'm not seen, I'm not loved, I don't matter, I'm not cared for. But notice how God in his grace and in his love displays that love toward his people by paying attention. He pays attention. The psalmist recognizes and celebrates this divine attention in Psalm 40, verse 17, where David writes this. He says, I am poor and needy. Very easy to ignore. Very easy to overlook. I am poor and needy. And yet, the Lord thinks upon me. Those are beautiful words. The Lord thinks upon me. He pays attention. But attention is especially important and meaningful to us when we're experiencing pain and suffering. We all desire attention, to know that we matter, that we're cared for, but when we find ourselves in the midst of pain and suffering, it is especially important that someone takes notice, that someone shows that they care and that our pain and our suffering matters. And that's the context of the divine attention we see here in Exodus 3. It's a context of suffering. Let's consider these words again. The Lord comes to Moses and he says, I have surely seen. That's attention. But what does he see? The affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry. I know, I care about their sufferings. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. That is what God is attentive to. He notices. And so listen, this morning, God knows the hardships and afflictions that you're dealing with. He knows your suffering. He cares about your pain. He notices your loneliness and your grief, and all of those troubles and burdens that you're carrying. God is paying attention to you out of his love. Know that. He's a God who pays attention. Listen to what uh, Elizabeth Elliot a lot of you know who she is, Christian author, wrote. She said, The God who created, named, and numbered the stars in the heavens also numbers the hairs of my head. Listen, he pays attention to very big things and to very small ones. What matters to me matters to him. And that changes my life. Divine attention, something to be celebrated. His divine attention is why we read in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. Did you catch that when we read Exodus chapter 3? I have come down to deliver them. Love came down. That's the language of Advent here. In Exodus chapter 3, I have come down to deliver them. It's the language of Advent, but it's pointing us to a time when in the person of Jesus birth to save and rescue us from a sin and to death. It's pointing forward to the birth of Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with the story uh, that J.B. Phillips wrote. J.B. No, I'm going in and out.
You get a new mic, Nate? I feel like I'm getting harassed in front of everybody when I put this stuff on. That's why I didn't go all the way back up there yet. All right. J.B. JB Phillips uh, uh, did a Bible translation, actually, but he has a story in which he writes of a senior angel showing the splendor of the vast universe to this junior angel. And after soaring through galaxies and looking at these gigantic stars for hours, they finally enter our galaxy. So this is what J.B. Phillips writes. He says, The two of them drew near to the star we call our sun and to its circling planets. The senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of the things he'd already seen. The senior angel said, I want you to watch that one in particular, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? And he listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Yeah, indeed. God has visited us on this sphere. He has given his divine attention to us in our misery and in our suffering to demonstrate his love for us. Love came down. But in his divine attention, he doesn't just give us that attention. He aims to do something about the pain and the suffering and the affliction that we find ourselves in, even as he did with the Israelites in Egypt. And so we also see divine appointment in verses 10 and 11. We read in verse 10 these words. God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Again, this designation of my people. So God intends to appoint Moses as the liberator of his, ensla of his enslaved people. Now, unsurprisingly... Moses immediately responds to this with hesitation and reluctance and voices his sense of lack of qualification and ability to carry out this task that God is assigning to him. So he says in verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And indeed, we could say, who, who is Moses? What's he going to be able to do? We should bear in mind that Egypt is probably the most powerful nation in the world at this point in time, how is Moses going to emancipate the entire Israeli labor force from their Egyptian taskmasters? What is Moses going to do? Well, we should remember a couple things. One, remember that Moses as a child was brought up in the court of Pharaoh. And so he had some kind of familiarity with the royal court, and perhaps he still had some relational connections in Egypt. But we should also balance it out with remembering that by this time, Moses has been tending sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. He's been out there for 40 years, and it's no longer the same Pharaoh back 
in Egypt. And so we wonder when we read these words of Moses, are these words expressing Moses' humility appropriately? Or are these words of a lack of trusting obedience? Or maybe there's some kind of combination of both. In any event, a greater rescue is needed for us all because of a greater bondage that we all have to sin and to death. And because a greater rescue is needed, a greater deliverer needs to be appointed. We need a greater appointed deliverer for us for this greater rescue that we all stand in need of. And when we get to the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented to us as the greater deliverer. In fact, Jesus is presented to us as a greater Moses. Jesus is a greater Moses. Consider these kinds of things. In childhood, both Moses and Jesus providentially survived a governmental decree that threatened to claim their lives. Both Jesus and Moses were threatened as children to be put to death. And both Jesus and Moses escaped into the inner regions of Egypt in order for their lives to be spared. Both Jesus and Moses passed through water and then went into the wilderness. Moses crosses the Red Sea and then enters the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes through the waters of the Jordan at his baptism and then is driven into the wilderness for 40 days. There's a connection between those things. They were both rejected by the people and they were both appointed by God as covenant mediators. So there are some similarities, but when we get to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, this is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He's greater than Moses. Why? Well, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Notice Moses is pointing forward the things that would be spoken later. Moses was faithful over God's house as a servant But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We also see that unlike Moses, Jesus spoke by his own authority. Not thus says the Lord. Jesus prefaced his teaching with, truly, truly, I say to you. He speaks of his own authority. We also see that Jesus accepted his divinely appointed task of liberating God's people without hesitation. No hesitation on the part of Jesus. When he's assigned this task, appointed this task to be the liberator and deliverer. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 5 and 7. When Christ came into the world, he said, not who am I to do this? He said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And also, unlike Moses, Jesus was able to offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice and a substitute to save sinners. Moses could not lay down his life as the Redeemer. Jesus was able to do that and did do that, offering himself as an atoning sacrifice, as the greater Moses appointed at birth to save us from a greater bondage to sin and to death. That's what we're celebrating this morning. We have that deliverer. God has sent that deliverer for us to rescue us. But we shouldn't fail to notice how tenderly God meets Moses' reluctance and hesitation here in Exodus chapter 3. He meets that with divine assurance in verse 12. God says in verse 12, in answer to Moses' objections, I will be with you. I will be with you. Go, Moses. Bring my people up out of Egypt. 
Who am I to do that? I will be with you, God says. Now notice that God doesn't attempt to address Moses' objections by trying to boost his self-confidence that he can actually do this. He doesn't direct Moses' attention to his unseen powers or his unseen abilities or his unlimited and untapped potential or strength. He doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he encourages Moses and answers his doubts by pointing Moses to himself. I will be with you. Leads one commentator named Peter Enns to say this. Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task was correct, but entirely beside the point. Whatever doubts Moses may have had about his own abilities were totally irrelevant. God promised to be with him. The reason it's irrelevant is because the crucial issue here is not Moses' competence, but God's presence. That's true not just for Moses. It's true for you and for me when we're called. The central issue is not our competence, but the presence of God. So it's true for Moses, it's true for me, it's true for you. It's not who I am, it's not who you are, it's not who Moses is, it's who God is. As the God who is with us. And so frequently in Scripture, not just with Moses, we see it with Joshua, we see it with Gideon, we see it with Jeremiah, we see it with the appointment of the twelve commissioned at the Great Commission. And it's true in our callings, your callings and my callings. And it's not so much a matter of a how when we're given a task. It's a matter of who when we're given a task by the Lord. Who says to us as well, I will be with you. And this divine assurance reaches its apex in Scripture with the birth of Jesus. Who shall be called Emmanuel. Which means, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. It's great tidings of comfort and joy in that. Because whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever hardships you're being called to shoulder, whatever challenges you're going to face in the new year, you don't know what they are yet, but whatever challenges are going to be, whether they're going to be physical challenges or emotional or mental challenges, or relational challenges, occupational, financial challenges, family challenges, spiritual challenges, whatever they're going to be, whatever you're facing now, know this. God is with you, believer. God has drawn near to you and is with you. He's alongside you to carry those burdens, not just with you, but to carry those burdens for you. I like to quote Paul Tripp, and Paul Tripp says this, The hope I have is more than a theological system or wisdom principles for everyday life. My hope rests on the willing, faithful, powerful, and loving presence of God with me. It is the ultimate gift of gifts to everyone who walks the harsh and bumpy road between birth and eternity. God has given us no sweeter, more beautiful gift than the gift of himself. He is the gift that changes everything. That's a really wonderful reminder on a day where many of us have or will be exchanging gifts to remember that the greatest gift that we've been given is the gift of God himself. And he gives himself to us in the person of Jesus. But notice also in verse 12 that God boosts this divine assurance that he gives to Moses with the promise of a sign. 
This is what God says. He says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, the astute reader will notice that this sign will not really be any kind of confirmation apart from faith exercised by Moses. It calls for a trusting and obedient response from Moses because he's not going to see the validation of God's call until the people are brought up out of Egypt. <laughs> so he has to move forward in faith. And this is a good lesson for us because we have to move forward in faith and obedience as well to know that God's promises are indeed confirmed and valid for us. Calls for faith. But it's difficult for me, and maybe difficult for some of you, to read Exodus chapter 3, verse 12 with this language and not think of another sign that's mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, it's in Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. When an angel appears to shepherds who are uh, watching their sheep by night, and the, the angel announces this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. Notice how close that is. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Very close language. A sign language as we see in Exodus chapter 3. And what's the sign here? It's a baby lying in a manger. Now that's not a typical place for a baby to be placed after birth. A manger is a feeding trough. But God announces this through an angel. The shepherd says, go and see. Go and see. You'll find it exactly as I say. And so the journey by the shepherds required faith. But it requires faith beyond that. Not just for the shepherds, but for you and for me as well. And the faith that it calls for is this, that this child placed in a manger, born in poor circumstances, that this child, in the birth of this child, God has provided for us a Savior. That's the promise. Born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior. Go and see and respond in faith. That this is the Savior who can save you from your sins and from the bondage of death. Do you believe that? Have you responded in faith to that? Well, if not, respond in faith to that today. That God has sent Jesus into the world to save sinners and to give them life through his birth. Believe on that today. And if you do believe in that, then rejoice today in Christ your Savior and know that love came down for you. For you, love came down to rescue you. In our weakness, in our brokenness, in our sin, we cannot climb up to God. If the Israelites were to be saved from Egyptian slavery, God was going to have to intervene. And if we are going to be saved from the darkness of our sin, in the reality of death, God is going to have to come down. We cannot save ourselves. But in his mercy, that's exactly what he's done. He has stooped to save and to deliver. God has come down to rescue. But he's come all the way down. In the words of one Christian author, Max Lucado, he says this. He stooped low enough to sleep in a manger, work in a carpentry shop, sleep in a fishing boat. Low enough to rub shoulders with crooks and lepers. Low enough to be spat upon, slapped, nailed, and speared. Low. Low enough to be buried. Let's go back to Manuel Gonzalez. It is right for people to celebrate what Manuel Gonzalez did to rescue those 33 miners that were trapped. It's right to honor him. 
But it's also good to remember that Manuel Gonzalez did not give up his life in order to save those miners. He didn't die so that they might live. And those trapped miners were not his enemies. But Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That is the wonder and the beauty of Christmas. That God stoops to deliver us in his compassion as his afflicted people from our bondage. Because Jesus descended from his glory, not simply to be born for us, but as Pastor Bob has already mentioned, but to die for us, that through his death, we might have the hope of new birth unto everlasting life. Let me conclude with the words of Dorothy Sayers, who I think captures the heart of Christmas very well. Dorothy Sayers writes this, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born we're celebrating that this morning. He was born, but he was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. That's why we celebrate today. Praise be to God. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your divine attention to us. In our plight, you have not turned away from us, but you have turned toward us with your divine attention. And you have given the clearest evidence of that divine attention in the sending of your son Jesus, appointed by you as our liberator and our rescuer from sin and death. And we have the assurance that you have delivered us and you're coming again to deliver us fully and finally. You've given us this assurance because you're with us. We thank you for that this day and all days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.